All right. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Well, I have good news today. We're going to be breaking new ground. So I'm pretty excited about this as we continue to study this book of Hebrews. And I'm just going to forewarn you up front, uh, because of the nature of what we're going to be confronted with, and it's quite jarring, because of that, we are going to have to hover over this. We're going to have to stop dead in our tracks. There are things that we are going to have to deal with uh, that are going to take a little bit of time, uh, simply to ensure that uh, what the writer had intended to write, his intentions for us, that we extrapolate those things uh, just as he intended. With that said, uh, before we get into this new ground, uh, we still have some unfinished business to tend to. We still have another elementary principle to deal with. So the first order of business is to deal with that, and that is, in fact, the laying on of hands. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a concept that has been really, honestly, instrumental throughout the narrative of the faith as you look at it. And it, 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 this is not a, a New Testament phenomenon. This is not something that's just exclusively found in the Old Testament. It is prevalent. This act of laying on of hands is prevalent throughout Scripture. And when we go there and we start looking at examples of this actually taking place, what we find is it happens at pivotal moments in time. Defining moments, it is the precursor to tell you something radical is about to happen. It's really incredible to look at. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, in, in times past, uh, before really studying it out, I was apathetic towards laying on of hands. In the sense that, not that I didn't believe it, of course not. I laid hands, I prayed for people, but how often do we get into the ritual, the habit, oh, someone needs prayer, oh, let's just go lay hands on them and let's pray. The reality is, is for many years, I did not appreciate the truth behind this principle. I did not feel the weight of it, nor did I really truly understand it to the depth that we're going to even get into today. And so one of the things that I want to accomplish is, is I don't want you to be one of those people who are apathetic, who do not understand uh, what is really happening. And when you go to lay hands on someone, you feel the weight of it. You know exactly what to expect. You know the gravity of the situation. I want you to appreciate that. And so we're going to dig into this. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a variety of different examples of this laying on of hands. And one thing you're going to notice, and this is very important, listen to me carefully. The laying on of hands, it is not exclusive to one specific context or one specific situation. Okay? There's actually a variety of contexts that apply and by which we see the, the laying on of hands is employed. And so... We're going to look at this broad context, and in doing so, you're going to get a great understanding of this particular elementary principle. With that said, what I want to do is I want to begin by taking you to the book of Genesis, and we're going to get to the end of the book, towards the end of the book, and Joseph's in Egypt. His family has come to join him. His father, Yaakov, Jacob, he's come down, and he's ready to die. 
And he calls for Joseph. He wants to bless his grandchildren, whom, grandchildren whom he claims for his own sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. These are two boys that the Lord has blessed Joseph with while being in Egypt. Well, he calls for them, and this is what we read. In Genesis 48, verse 13, And Yosef took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And then we read this, Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. In other words, what it's, getting, what, what it's really saying is, is Joseph, being an astute man, he grabs his two sons. His firstborn, he intentionally puts in his left hand. He puts his younger in his right hand, knowing he's going to walk straight to his father and he's going to make it as easy as possible so that all his father has to do is go out, stretch out his hand straight forward and his right hand will come upon the firstborn. He will get the firstborn blessing and his left hand will be put on the younger. But it's interesting, this was God's plan, that the firstborn would go to Ephraim, the firstborn blessing. So what he did is he crossed his hands like this and he was intentional about it. And, and we're not going to get into this part of the story. And Joseph's like, not so, my father. No, 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 no. This one is the younger. This is the firstborn. Put your, hand, your right hand on him. And Jacob, he knows exactly what he is doing. He's intentionally putting his right hand on Ephraim and also his left hand on uh, Manasseh. But what was the purpose? Well, really simple as we continue. And he blessed Yosef and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Yitzhak walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name um, let, let my name be upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Yitzhak, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so what we see here is the context of laying on of hands. What was it? It was blessing. That's why Yaakov laid his hands. And I want to be very clear because, again, don't reduce this to a crust of bread. When Yaakov laid his hands and blessed the lads, know this. They were blessed. This impacted their life forever. That's how dramatic this situation was. He wasn't going to die until he did this. This is critical to see this. And this kind of goes back to something we talked about last week. As we got it, we were talking about baptism and, and all these parents bringing their children to Yeshua. Well, why were they doing that? Well, look at, let's go back there and look at this. Yeshua said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. See, what, what I want you to understand is the reason these parents were bringing their young children, their infants, to Yeshua was the very thing that they knew. They knew, they knew their heritage. They knew their story. They knew what Yaakov did. The blessing Lay your hands upon our children so that they are blessed. And they knew if they were to bring them to Yeshua, that would happen. No question about it. If he blesses them, they're going to be blessed. That is a radical change. Totally impacts their life. And so this is the context. So we see clearly that there is a time when uh, the laying out of the hands is in the context explicitly of blessing. 
I want to take you to another context. And this one is of power. Mark 6, 4, but Yeshua said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Isn't that fascinating? Now understand, Mark, or as it's attributed to Mark, he mentions this deal. Why not just say, he could not do much work there, but he healed a few sick people. That conveyed the message quite clearly. Why not just say that? He's very specific to include a specific detail. The laying on of hands. Yeshua laid hands on them, and that's when they were healed. You feel the weight of that. There's, there's a reason he included it. Luke does the same thing in Luke 440. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to Yeshua, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Isn't that amazing? You, you, you have this transference of power, and it happens through the conduit of the laying on of hands. It's at that moment they're healed. And we see this, that there's many times that Yeshua does this. Let me just show you one more time. Luke 13, 11. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could not and could no, no way raise herself up. But when Yeshua saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And what did he do? And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorify God. I mean, we could, we could continue to look at this. This is, Yeshua was in the habit of laying his hands on people and healing them. Now, does that mean that every time this is how it went? No, there are times where Yeshua spoke the word and the people were healed. But oftentimes what you see is he laid his hands upon them. Why did he do that? This was his way. I want you to think about this something. When I see Yeshua, you want to pay attention to what he does. He is laying on his hands on that person intentionally. This is orchestrated. This is how he wants it to be done. This is how they're to receive healing through his hands, the laying on of hands, which really puts this into a very weighty context for us. And then, of course, every one of these people life-altering event after this laying on of hands. You know, the more we begin to dig into this, the bigger deal it becomes. Let me continue to build upon this, and I want to take you to Acts chapter 8, verse 9. It's an interesting story. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Yeshua, Messiah, both men and women were baptized. Now, this isn't even the point we're going to make, but here's another example on the heels of baptism. The gospel is going out, and what is the next thing you read? It's that they're getting baptized. There was no delay. You can see the urgency here, even in, in chapter 8, moving on to verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. 
Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Moving on to verse 15. Who, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have this context where we have righteous men of God laying their hands on people and they receive a blessing. We have a context where, you know, Yeshua is laying his hands on people and they're being healed. And now we have this context where we see the apostles laying their hands upon people and they're receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing thing. Talk about, again, pivotal moment. When you see this act of laying on of hands, something radical is about to happen. Something monumental is going to take place. And this we see right here in this, in this instant is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the conduit is the laying on of hands. Every time, look at this. This is incredible. Moving on, we're not done with the story. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered the money. Think about what he just said. Simon's looking at what the apostles are doing and he's recognizing they received the Spirit. Why? Because they laid hands on them. Talk about a weight of emphasis. He sees this. He wants this. And then he goes on saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Ruach HaKodesh. Absolutely amazing. He knows there's power here and he knows the conduit is the laying on of hands. Acts 19 verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Power. They weren't speaking in tongues and prophesied. When he laid his hands on them, that's when the anointing came. So we see it in in Acts chapter 8. We see this anointing come upon them. The power comes upon them. Acts 19, the same thing. And the instrument to make this happen, this conduit, is in fact the laying on of hands. 1 Timothy 4.14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Now, one thing that I got to state here, obviously, when, when you're getting in situations like this, the person who is laying hands upon the other person is instrumental of where he is at. If he has no anointing from Most High, he cannot transfer anything to the the person he's laying hands on. This is very important to recognize. You know, there are aspects of this. So, you know, most people, if you think like Simon, hey, I'm just going to run around and start laying hands on people and people are going to be healed. Not necessarily, no. Just because you laid hands on something, no, no, no. You have to have an anointing. You can't transfer something you don't have. All right? It's just like a bank account. If somebody wants to transfer, you transfer. You got to have money to transfer into someone's other bank account so they can benefit from that. That's huge. It's the same way here. It's the same thing that we see. It's not just anybody laying hands. What you'll notice is it's the apostles. It's the elders. The ones that have been called to have authority. Which kind of leads us to, our, to the next thing I want to point out here in regard to the laying on of hands. I want to take you to the Torah. We're going to see an interesting context here. 
That's a little bit different. So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. Fascinating. The first thing I want to mention here is the context is dedication. It's dedication. It's an inauguration. People are being dedicated for a specific work of the kingdom, for the kingdom of God. And this is done through the laying on of hands. The second thing I want to point out is this. It was commanded. The Lord is commanding Moses. This is how this is supposed to happen. So you need to feel that. God is commanding that Israel lay their hands upon the Levites. So you wonder why we see all this activity in the New Testament of righteous men of God going out, laying hands on people. It's the mind of the Lord. It's what his will is. This is how he's orchestrated people to receive anointing, to people to receive blessing, for people to be committed into the ministry, to be committed into the kingdom of God. It's through this laying on of hands. And this isn't the only example we have. Going to Acts chapter 6, you have the, the Hellenists, they come to the Hebrews in Jerusalem and they start making a big stink about the fact that their widows are being neglected. So the apostles get together and they say, hey, listen, go find seven men filled with the Holy Spirit. Dedicate them to the distribution of the widows. We're not going to leave the word of God in prayer for this. But let's get the right men and the job. So they go get seven men, seven righteous men. Stephen's one of them. And they bring them before the apostles. Now, this is what we read. Whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So you understand the commissioning. For them to be commissioned to be brought into the ministry, just as Israel did with the Levites, they were brought into the ministry, dedicated for the work of the kingdom. This happened because the laying on of hands. Very important. And the beautiful thing about this is, this is one of the things you see many churches, they're doing well. If they're going to send off a missionary, if they're going to send off anyone, they typically, what you'll see is call people up, and we do it here, but you'll call people up and you'll lay hands on them and pray. What an awesome thing to do, because that's exactly how they did it biblically. The concept is totally biblical, and it's powerful, because it's the mind of the Lord. This is, this is his will. This is how he has orchestrated this. Moving on to Acts 13, the same thing happened to Paul and Barnabas. As they entered, uh, ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. I mean, this is Paul and Barnabas, these men were anointed and the way they sent them out into ministry dedicated for the kingdom, for the specific work of the Lord, they did it with the laying on of hands. We need to pick up on this so that we make sure we're incorporating these things, we make sure we understand these things, the moments that we're supposed to be doing this, the moments we're not supposed to be doing this. In Numbers chapter 27, we probably have the most well-known example and the Lord said to Moshe, take Yehoshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and do what? Lay your hand on him, 
Set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight and you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Now this is amazing. Again, at the command of the Lord, how he wanted Jehoshua Joshua to take his position as a leader of Israel, the way he is to be inaugurated. Moses, you must lay your hand on him. And what do we see happening when Moses lays his hand on? Part of his authority goes to Joshua. A transference happens when you lay your hands on something. There's a conduit. It's literally a conduit. He transferred his authority to him. That is an amazing thing. And going on to verse 23. And Moses laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Now I just want to jump to the end of the Torah because there's something else that happened to Joshua the moment Moses laid his hands on him. And this is huge because this is very New Testament-ish, if you will. And this is, and in Jehoshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? Because Moses had laid his hands on him. He got wisdom. He received an anointing of the Holy Spirit. This was explicitly through the laying on of hands. One more example I want to give you. And this example is found in Leviticus 16. And the whole chapter, most of you already know this, but the whole chapter is dedicated to Yom Kippur. This, the, 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 the highest, the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. And on this day, a very special ceremony took place. It was the central point of the whole day, was this ceremony. And, and, and two of the biggest figures in this ceremony were two goats, identical goats. And one was for the Lord, and one was, one was called Azazel. And, and, and the priest would put his hands in this lottery box, and he would pull out two lots. And one would say Ladonai, one would say Azazel, and he would put these lots on the respective heads. And the one for the Lord that went on the goat, that one was to be killed, but the other one, known as the scapegoat, something unusual the priest was to do to this specific goat. And we read what that is. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. This is Azazel. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins. And what happens? Putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an inhabited, uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, this is a very different context than the blessing, than the power, the healing, than the commissioning, the dedication into ministry. This is a completely different context. Here we see the Kohen, Gadol, he lays his hands on the head of the goat, and there is a transference again, but this time it's the transference of sins. And there's a special prayer, it's recorded in the Mishnah. As you can see, this, this, this prayer that the Kohen Gadol would say as he's laying his hands over the head of the goat, confessing all the sins of Israel. And literally, those sins would be placed on the head of the goat and would be let out. Never to come back again. As far as the east is from the west, so far the Lord removes our sins from us. And we know Yeshua, he bore our sins. That scapegoat bore the sins of Israel. That's an amazing thing, all done by the laying on of hands. And so when we look at this passage in Hebrews 6, 
the elementary principles and this laying on of hands, this gives you a little broader perspective, a little broader understanding of what this entails. However, having said that, I do want to submit to you that the specific context by which the writer is referring to laying on of hands would be that of Acts 8, that of Acts 19. In other words, when they go and they get baptized, the next thing that is happening is there is a laying on of hands and a receiving of the Holy Spirit. This is the context by which the writer is conveying this laying on of hands. So this is something, you know, honestly, that we need to think about when we do. And I, I know some of you probably are looking at your hands going, these are awesome. These are awesome. But the thing about it is, it's not you specifically laying hands. It's you doing the will of God, being submissive and humble before him with faith in the power of Yeshua. That's when you start laying hands on people and things begin to happen. Because we in and of ourselves have no power. Okay? It's all uh, Yeshua. It's his power. Amen? With that said, I'm excited now to break into some new ground. And so we're going to continue in verse 4. And here we go. It is impossible. Potent words. Right at the front end of this verse. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I want to stop here because we're interrupting his thought. We'll, we'll finish this thought. You need to recognize something. He is describing a particular group of people. Look at these descriptions enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. Let me ask you, who is he talking about? He's talking about the redeemed, the holy ones, the ones whom Yeshua has bought at a price. These are the ones that walk with the son of the living God and he is living inside of them. There is no debate here about who we're talking about. And unless this sinks down, you're not going to really feel the weight of what we're going to read next. So here the writer says, it is impossible for believers. It's a very easy way to look at it. It's impossible for believers if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Jarring. Again. It is impossible for believers, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. One of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture, hands down, right next to Matthew 7, where Yeshua is describing a particular group of people. These are believers, and they had an anointing because they cast out demons. They prophesied. They did many works, all in the name of Jesus, all in the name of Yeshua. And Yeshua looks at them as he gets into Matthew 7, 23, and he tells them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness, get away from me. The writer of Hebrews is expressing the very same message Yeshua expresses in Matthew chapter 7. They were anointed, they had anointing, we read in Matthew chapter 7, but something happened. They fell away. They absolutely fell away. What makes one of the scariest passages in Scripture even scarier? If that's possible. 
It's the fact that today, many Christians do not believe this. They are confronted with this, they read this, and it gets too real. It's too heavy, it's too extreme. No, 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 this doesn't make sense. The writer, I can't be understanding the writer correctly. We're living in in a dispensation of grace. I don't see any grace here. Where is the grace? What do you do with a passage like this? I'm gonna tell you, this is one of the most hotly debated passages in the New Testament within Christendom, especially in light of our Calvinist brothers and sisters, the Reformed theology, which, which states, the Reformed theologians, the Reformed pastors, it states that if you have an authentic experience with Yeshua, you've committed your life to him, you are walking with him, well then, no matter what you do or say in the future, no matter what you do or say, your salvation is locked. You cannot lose your salvation. Yes, it may be true, your, your gifts are gonna dwindle. You will not be as wealthy in heaven, but you don't have to worry. These reformed theologians, these reformed pastors, they metaphorically, they tuck their congregants in a bed and they tell them, sleep tight, your salvation is locked. There's nothing to worry about until you read a passage like this. And then you realize, wait a second, that something, something doesn't work well there. I mean, just read this at face value. It is terrifying. Because of the controversy, because of the nature of what we just read, we are going to be peeling back layers of this. And, and again, let me reiterate, today, we are not coming full circle with this. I do not want you to leave today and say, oh, that's the complete thought. I got it. It's all good. No, it's not. What we cover today is a layer. We're going to be looking at a layer. This is very controversial. There are scholars debating this issue. There have been reformed scholars that have tried to destroy this passage by saying, well, we're just reading it wrong in the Greek. And and, and I, I actually have copies of these discussions and going through that, and other scholars come in and say, whoa, whoa, time out, what are you doing? You're absolutely destroying this, and what you're saying, it's not even accurate. I mean, you wouldn't believe the debates that are going behind the scenes because there's a war. There is a war against truth. There is a war, and passages like this, they go to the top. You'll notice that these are not passages like uh, typically being taught from the pulpits today because there are pastors that don't want to deal with it. I've talked to them. They don't want to deal with this. You know, you're reading, you're reading, you're like, oh, that's great. Now let's move on. We'll keep going because it's heavy. It's too extreme. The very thought of it goes against, you know, most people's understanding of the grace message. This dispensation of grace that that we're under. So because of that, we're going to dig in. And the first thing I want to do is I want to take you to another part in Hebrews It's probably the most appropriate thing to do on the front end. We actually have a second witness to what the writer is saying. And it's by himself. But we find he says the exact same thing that he says here in chapter 6. He says it in chapter 10. But he uses different terminology. And I'm going to tell you, as we go to chapter 10, we're given greater clarity of exactly what he means and what he doesn't mean. Because I'm going to tell you, a huge component of of literally digging into this passage. It's not just about uh, looking at what he says, but it's also about understanding what he does not say. And then, of course, what solidifies it all 
is burying this thing in Scripture. Because this is a life and death situation. And the writer is he's literally coming out to warn his own brethren against a great deception. There's a great deception amongst believers. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about a specific group of believers who are falling away. And it's through lies, it's through deception. So with that said, I want to take you to chapter 10. And this is what we read. For if we sin willfully, after, listen to this, same group of people, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, we're dealing with believers, okay? Just like we were in chapter six. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, there are some preachers that could take the pulpit today and say that, and people would say, you're a heretic. You don't believe in the grace message. You're coming against the grace of God. This is a reality. Now, does this sound familiar, what we just read? Because it sounds exactly like it is impossible for believers, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. It sounds exactly, it's just different terminology. And we look at this, understand plainly. There is no atonement for a person who willingly sins against God. There isn't. So what we realize is that it does matter, as a believer in Yeshua, it does matter what you do. It makes a difference. It has an impact on your salvation. And for me saying these things, I am not popular. This is not. But all I want to do is I just want to understand exactly what they say. I don't want to twist it. I want to contort it. I just want to receive it. No matter how much our flesh doesn't like it, because you know what's going to be required when you read something like this? You are going to have to change. You will have to crucify the flesh. No longer can you use grace as this get-out-of-jail-free card that you look at it to tell yourself, I'm okay doing this sin because I always have this reboot button over here. You want to talk about a perverse mind? That is the ultimate perversity. When you, when you have the grace of God in view as you accept sin in your life, that is vile rebellion. And you, we ought not to think myself above you all, we ought to not to think for one second that we're in a state of grace. God forbid. I want to share with you some ancient Jewish knowledge. Comes from the Mishnah. Actually, it, it would, you know, the Mishnah redacted by uh, Yehuda Hanasi in 200 AD. But all these teachings of the Mishnah existed at the time the writer of Hebrews wrote this. And there are specific understandings that the rabbis had and that the rabbis taught in regard to repentance and relationship to grace. I want to share something from you with, with you from the Mishnah. And ironically, this comes from Yoma, which is, which is the tractate all about Yom Kippur. It's all about mercy. It's all about grace. This is what we read. He who says, I shall sin and repent, sin and repent, they give him no chance to do repentance. He says, I will sin and the day of atonement will atone. The day of atonement does not atone. In other words, what the rabbis are saying is if in your mind saying, you know what? I know the day of atonement's coming. I have the grace of God there. It's okay if, it's okay if I do this. It's okay if I sin. You are willfully embracing sin with this ideology that you'll just lean upon grace later on. The rabbis even teach exactly what the writer of Hebrews is teaching. That is a perversity. 
That is a deception. You will die in your sins. You've already made your choice. If your decision is to go with the crowd, you know, and this is part of the problem. We are horizontal believers. In other words, what I'm saying is, is the way we uh, decide to live our life as Christians today, we look at other Christians and what are they doing? And if they're, what they're doing, well, I, you know, I, I, what they're doing is a little bit liberal, but you know what? They're Christians. They believe in Jesus. It's okay. So you know what? I'm going to do it because it is grace. It's all about grace. I don't have to worry about that. We're not, Exodus 23, we're not to be led astray with the wicked. We're not to go with the multitude of the crowd, no matter how big, no matter how bad the peer pressure is. Our faith is to be vertical. We are either looking down at his word or we're looking up at him. We are not to be horizontal believers. And this is what happens. This is what impacts passages like this where we got people coming on the scenes totally twisting and contorting them and not allowing to receive it, which creates fear. The fear of God and fear of sin, knowing what it does, knowing the power that it has if you accept it. You go out and accept sin, there will be consequences. Do not allow the devil or your flesh to tell you otherwise. That being said, I want to take you to the Torah. I want to show you what the rabbis have said. I want to show you what the writer of Hebrews has said. All is completely consistent with the Torah. And this is what we read in Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously, you look at that in the Hebrew, it literally means defiantly. They know. Okay, this is a command of God. I know it's a command of God, but you know, I, I'm going to do it. Because I want to do it. Everybody's doing it. And so it's defiantly, it's rebelliously. They know right and wrong, but he does it presumptuously. Whether he is a native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. In other words, you become a blasphemer. You blaspheme his holy name. And what? He shall be cut off from among his people. You are to die. You are to be killed. We're talking about eternal judgment. Anyone, Jew, Gentile, who does anything rebelliously with the mindset of, oh, I know this is a commandment of God, but it's okay. I have grace. You're a dead man. And this comes straight out of the Torah. Psalm 68, verse 21. God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. He will not turn back. There is no repentance. He's looking at it and he has lied to himself. Exactly what we were warned in Deuteronomy 29 do not say to yourself that oh, I shall have peace even though I walk according to the dictates of my own heart. Jeremiah prefaces the same thing, Jeremiah 23. See, because this is a real threat. Our heart is so deceitful and it does not want to obey. It wants to sin. It wants to go against the commandments of God. God is going to destroy that person who gives in. Proverbs 13, verse 13. He who despises the word will be destroyed. But he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. And that very word despise, this is what the word that you would find in Jeremiah 23. When he comes against them and he's rebuking them for giving heed to the, to the false prophets, telling them they're going to have peace even though they walk according to the dictates of their heart. And the Lord's response, they despise me. They're not listening to me. Amos 2.4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Yehuda and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. There is no forgiveness. This is what the prophets have spoken. Why is there no forgiveness? Because they have despised the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, and have not kept his commandments. 
Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. See, it's terrifying when you start to bury the, the, the statement that the writer of Hebrew makes with Scripture and finding out that it's consistent, that's when the terror of the Lord comes in. Now, if you throw away the Old Testament, you can get away to a point of really manipulating what the writer of Hebrews says. But not when you allow the Torah and the prophets to speak. Then it gets really scary and you're like, God, have mercy on my soul. May I never be such a man. May I never willingly go against and, and sin against your great name. Exodus 32, 33. And the Lord said to Moshe, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Well, that's ridiculous. That's too harsh. Today, we can't accept these words. We cannot accept these words. These words haven't gone anywhere. These are the words that the writer of Hebrews is sharing. We are supposed to have the death literally scared out of us. Hades scared out of us through the righteousness, through the purity, through the truth, through the love and compassion of God's word. Joshua 24, we read this. And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, this is a passage we looked at on earlier when we were covering Psalm 95. And looking at the urgency of the gospel and to receive the truth of the gospel today, to receive Yeshua into our hearts. We need to do it today. There's not, there's be no delay. Okay, but here's the thing. The people respond to Joshua. He tells them, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. So what do the people say? The people say this, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Now listen to what Joshua, how Joshua responds. This is amazing. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression nor your sins. He will not do it. And the context he's making this statement is the exact identical context that the writer of Hebrews is sharing. If we willfully sin after receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is exactly what's being conveyed. Ezekiel 18, verse 24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, again, what group of persons are we to? We're talking about believers. I mean, this is a theme. When he turns away from the righteousness, commits iniquity, does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, shall he live? It's the million dollar question. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. He shall die. You know, it is amazing to see some of the, some of the commentaries and comments that you will see in regard to Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. It is mind-blowing. To even see comments that stating, well, if I believe what you're saying, that I'm to take at face value of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, well, then that's just ridiculous. No, one can, no one's perfect. This is not even fair. This, is, this, doesn't, this doesn't work at all. Where is grace in this message? And here's what's interesting. You read this, and the Lord lays it out specifically. It's crystal clear. He's not going to live. He's going to die if he turns from his righteousness and accepts iniquity. How?
did the children of Israel respond? This will blow your mind. The children of Israel respond, the way of the Lord is not fair. It's not fair. And I don't care. I mean, if we're going to be honest with you, you can read passages in, in Hebrews chapter 6, and you can read it in, in, in um, Hebrews chapter 10, and your flesh is going to tell you just that. This is crazy. This is too extreme. The Lord is asking too much of me for, you know, for me to stop living completely in the world. It's one thing for me to sacrifice some things, but you know, to have my whole heart, soul, and body dedicated to Yeshua, well, that's just weird. And that's just too extreme. And the devil comes in and he, whatever lies he's peddling, there's so many different lies. He hits you, each and one of you, and, uh, and me and everyone else in our weak spots. And he exploits your weak spots, the things that you're weak in. And he will magnify his pursuit in that until he gets you to succumb to where you lay your head down at night and say, ah, oh, I'm saved. I'm okay. When in fact, you're not. It's not to say that you can't have that confidence of walking when you have that anointing of the Holy Spirit and you're walking in, in faith in Yeshua. You should be able to have that confidence. No question. The issue is not that. The issue is, is as a believer, you're walking that walk and then you start to get a pallet for sin. And yet there's no fear in your life. That is not going to work. You're going to come to judgment and you will loathe the decisions you have made in this life. You will loathe those things that you pursued in the world, whether it's money, whether, it, whether it's idols or your various idols, the things that you covet that affected your life, that soaked up your time. You will loathe these things on the day of judgment. You do not want them to be a part of your life. Let me take you into the New Testament. Uh, this is uh, finishing up what it says here in Ezekiel. Here now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? This is how the Lord responds to this. This is how we need to respond to Hebrews 6 to Hebrews 10. His ways are fair. It's truth. All right, now moving on to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that unless, uh, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Again, the context is you're a believer. You're identified as the temple of God. The spirit of God is dwelling within you. Paul makes the same statement that the writer of Hebrews does multiple times. And what does Paul say? You sin, you defile this temple, you die. Is that extreme? Is that crazy? Yes, what does that do when we read it, when we allow this context to, to penetrate into our heart? It makes us think twice about sinning. It's not worth it. It makes you feel the weight of the death that sin promotes. The wages of sin is death. So as we look at this, if we willfully sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And the writer goes on, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. If you have a sin you are struggling in right now, I'm telling you, get out of it. Whatever it takes, fasting and praying, get out of it now. Because the only expectation that you have as a believer in Yeshua is death if you are in fact embracing death if you're embracing sin. 
Moving on to verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moshe's law dies without mercy. Think about that statement. And you can go to the Torah and you can go to the prophets and you can see those who rejected his law and you can see what happened to them. It came to fruition exactly as it said. You will die without mercy if you reject God's law, which is Moshe's law. It's the same thing. They're used transposably in scripture. You do that, you will die without mercy. And it's on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Going on to verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? And this is something we have covered. In other words, what the writer is telling you, it was one thing for you to sin prior to the coming of Yeshua. But now that God's grace has been poured out, it is a worse offense to commit that same sin now that grace has been given. We are not to insult the spirit of grace. Amen.